1: Russia's FSB warns businesses to be on the lookout for American cyber attacks after the White House says it's reserving its right to respond to the Solorigate cyber espionage campaign. SonicWall investigates an apparent compromise of its systems. A senator asks the U.S. DNI for an explanation of DIA purchases of geolocation data from commercial vendors. OPC issues are described. Andrea Little-Limbago from Interos on the tech naughty list of restricted or sanctioned companies. Rick Howard previews his first principles analysis of Microsoft Azure and happy birthday to the word robot, now 100 years young. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, January 25th, 2021. Russia's FSB has issued an alert on the threat of targeted computer attacks, warning businesses of increased likelihood of U.S. cyber attack. In the face of constant accusations against the Russian Federation by representatives of the United States and their allies of Russian involvement in organizing computer attacks, as well as threats from their side of retaliatory attacks on the Russian Federation's critical information infrastructure, we recommend taking the following measures to improve the security of information resources. End quote. ZDNet characterizes the FSB alert as a signaling response to remarks by the new U.S. administration last Wednesday. Referring to Solorigate, a representative said, We reserve the right to respond at a time and manner of our choosing to any cyber attack. U.S. officials have attributed the cyber espionage campaign to Russia, which has denied responsibility. The FSB's alert amounts to an anodyne but sound list of 15 cyber hygiene best practices, and who could object to that? Lawfare has published a piece on the risk SolarGate poses to control systems, and specifically the SolarWinds Orion platform's supply chain compromise. The authors are concerned to remind people that the issues the Orion Compromise opened up could very easily spread to control system networks, whether in the industrial Internet of Things or in such networks as are used to control building HVAC systems. Late Friday evening, SonicWall disclosed that it had been the victim of quote, a coordinated attack on its internal systems by highly sophisticated threat actors exploiting probable zero-day vulnerabilities on certain SonicWall secure remote access products, quote. The company initially believed that NetExtender VPN had been compromised, but has revised its assessment to conclude that this product is safe. A possible zero day in the SMA-100 series remains under investigation. To summarize the state of their product security, according to the company, the SonicWall firewalls, NetExtender VPN client, the SMA-1000 series, and SonicWave access points are all unaffected by the vulnerability. The SMA-100 series, as we noted, is still under investigation, but SonicWall is offering guidance on mitigations users can apply against the possibility that there's a problem. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency responded to an inquiry from Senator Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, acknowledging that the DIA provides funding to another agency that purchases commercially available geolocation metadata aggregated from smartphones. The memo went on to explain that, quote, DIA purchases location data generated by phones located outside the United States and inside the United States. DIA's data provider does not supply separate streams of U.S. and foreign location data, and DIA processes the location data as it arrives to identify U.S. location data points, which it segregates in a separate database. DIA personnel can only query this database of U.S. location data when authorized by the Chief of Staff and DIA's Office of General Counsel. Permission to query DIA's database of commercially acquired U.S. device location data has been granted five times in the past two and a half years." Senator Wyden has asked Director of National Intelligence Haynes for an explanation. The New York Times characterizes this form of collection as a loophole in existing U.S. law that some legislators, Senator Wyden among them, hope to correct with more specific, comprehensive privacy legislation. Clarity today released a summary of flaws in the Open Platform Communications Network Protocol, They've been working on identifying the vulnerabilities and disclosing them to affected vendors since last year and are now beginning a public review of what they've learned. Three major vendors have already addressed the issues and Clarity recommends that users update their systems to the latest versions. The three vendors are Softing Industrial Automation, GmbH, Kepware PTC, and Metricon Honeywell. All have provided fixes for OPC issues. And people are marking the hundredth anniversary, the centennial, of the word "robot," coined by Karel Čapek in his play R.U.R. The initials in the play's title stand for Rossumovi Universalni Roboti. R.U.R. also works in the direct English translation, often appended as a subtitle: Rossum's Universal Robots. Čapek's story is about a factory that produces artificial humans, for which he coined the word robot from the Czech robota, which connotes a drudge, a forced worker, like a serf. Rossum's robots aren't mechanical. They're fabricated from biological material, so they're closer to Blade Runner's replicants than to Robbie the robot. But robots they were, and they're very algorithmical in their manner. Čapek's word has found its way into most modern languages— So this week, we take a break from the internet and find a copy of RUR, Reddit, and spare a thought for Mr. Chopik. We won't give you any spoilers, but what the heck, it's robots, so, you know, it doesn't end entirely happily. Although at the end of it, all the robots themselves seem to be doing as okay as any robot can. And when you're through with RUR, don't worry, it's short. Find a copy of Chopik's War with Newt's. See how someone in the 1930s saw with blinding clarity how memes, in a sense understood, but in the bigger picture completely uncomprehended, take root and spread. We won't give you any spoilers, but oh, what the heck, it's all about committing to an identity. British readers will especially like the Newt who picks up his worldview from Fleet Street. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I am pleased to be joined once again by the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer, Rick Howard. Rick, always great to have you back. Thank you, sir. So this week you are launching uh, an eight episode series, and you're examining your first principal ideas, uh, but you're doing it within the framework of the big three cloud provider services, which is Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. Uh, bring us up to speed here. What are you, what are you getting at here? Well,
2: uh, the cloud revolution really got to start back in 2006 when Amazon rolled out AWS. Microsoft followed suit with a competing service in 2010 with Azure. And then Google came to the game uh, with Google Cloud Platform, or GCP, in 2012. And by the way, Dave, I can never remember what GCP stands for, so I have to say it, you know, every single time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, and there are other players in the market, like Oracle and IBM, come to mind. But the big three that most security executives talk about are Amazon, Microsoft, and Google.
1: Ike, you know, you say Amazon started in in two thousand six. I cannot believe it. Just it doesn't seem like it's been that long.
2: Tell me about it. That's, we're just too old, my friend. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what I've noticed though is that our entire security community has been running at full speed, heads down, now for years, thinking you know tactically about the technical widgets required to get these new environments running, and then flipping switches and turning dials on those widgets to provide some sort of security. So I figured it was time to take a beat and consider the strategic picture. How do you think about cloud deployments through a first principle lens? How do you implement these four keystone strategies that I've been going on and on about in each of these environments? And then more importantly, how do you orchestrate those strategies, not only in hybrid cloud environments, but also in SaaS applications, mobile devices, and data centers back at headquarters as a single system of systems?
1: Hmm. What do we need to know going into this? Is there any prep work that listeners should do before uh, before binging the series?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, no prep work, no homework for you, Dave, all right? But uh, maybe <laughs> a couple of things just to keep in mind, all right? Then the first thing is that, All cloud offerings provide some kind of networking infrastructure designed for their customers' automation workloads. And these come in the form of infrastructure and platform subscriptions. And then the second thing is that all cloud providers offer software as a service or SaaS products to help you manage your workloads in those environments. Sometimes they provide them as part of the infrastructure service, and sometimes, you know, you have to pay extra for them. I bring this up because it might be useful to consider IaaS stuff and PaaS and SaaS subscriptions as individual products that are managed by different product management teams within the larger company. Depending on how old they are, you can consider some of them to even be startup products. I mean, in other words, some of them are more mature than others. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, so Google launched Cloud Identity in as a SaaS product in 2018, Microsoft launched Azure Active Directory in 2019, and these products might be fantastic, but they're only three years old. You know, how mature can they be? And Hmm. just because they have a big brand name over them doesn't mean that they are completely ready for prime time. And that's especially true for security products. Amazon released their AWS Network Firewall in 2020. You can't expect that product to have the same feature set and maturity that the traditional firewall vendors like Checkpoint, Cisco... Palo Alto Networks and Fortinet have
1: in theirs hmm. so this week you are kicking things off and you're going to be examining Microsoft Azure that's right we'll do Microsoft first then
2: Amazon then Google and then we'll wrap everything up with how the big security platforms play in those environments
1: all right we're well, looking forward to it it is uh, CSO Perspectives it is part of CyberWire Pro you can find that on our website cyberwire.com Rick Howard thanks for joining us thanks Dave Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Littledimbago. She is the VP of Research and Analysis at Interos. Uh, Andrea, it's always great to have you back uh, I want to talk today about this notion of um, uh, sort of tech naughty lists, that there are certain companies that have found themselves uh, uh, sanctioned throughout the world um, and the impact of that. I wanted to get your take on on uh, what's going on here.
0: Yeah, no, no actually, I, I love the term naughty list. I, I first heard it from Megan Brown, so I'm going to give her credit for when I first heard it. But really, it, it encompasses the range of restricted entity lists, that companies are finding themselves on that basically means that they have limited ability to trade and export with the United States or you know there are, there are EU versions there's you know the u n sanctions uh, but really in the in the u s the u s has been hitting a, just a rapid pace of adding on uh, to this list and there, there are a couple different areas to touch upon uh, one would be the um, commerces restricted entity list, and that has basically skyrocketed over the last two years for adding Chinese companies, mm. and so in 2019 they added 142 companies to that list from China, and while the majority were Huawei, and I think that's the one that everyone that you know, garners everyone's attention. So it's Huawei right. and Huawei affiliates, uh, and most of those are for you know for various kinds of uh, security concerns. You know, extends well beyond that. There, um, you know, actually then you know 2019 was 142, 2020 so far there've been 106 additional ones uh, added. So you know over the last. Two years, you get over 200 Chinese companies added to this restricted list. And it ranges from some of the security designations, uh, such as Huawei, um, but also extends into for their role in in surveillance and repression of the Uyghurs in China uh, to also uh, to WMD, uh, you know, for trying to circumvent some of the WMD restrictions. So it's, huh. for, it's for a broad range of reasons, and that's just commerce's restricted entity list. And so, you know, again, it's sort of the um, the who's who in the zoo in, in the U.S. with some of these lists, because there's more than one list. So it's it's very hard for companies to maintain, you know, you know stay on top of this for compliance. You know, this year alone, there was a time this summer when it was almost every two weeks, commerce was adding a couple dozen more companies to this list. It was a pretty rapid pace. Uh, so that's hard to stay on top of. But then on top of that, you know, if you're working with the federal government, there's now Section 889 of uh, the National Defense Authorization Act that basically says that uh, five companies and their affiliates—so it's Hightera, Hikvision, Huawei again, uh, ZTE, and Dahua—their products cannot be within the ecosystem of federal contractors that are working with the government. And why that? You know, it sounds like only five companies, but it's actually much more than that because it's five companies and their subsidiaries and affiliates. And hmm. so, and that. So I did, you know. Spent a couple of weeks looking into that and came up with over 900 <laughs> different. Wow. But because it's you know, worded in such a way, you know, I can guarantee that I don't have them all. Um, and then at the same time, you know, does, does it, what does it include? You know, so I included some of the Huawei affiliates, for ex- for instance, that were on the commerce list. That are some open labs, and you know whether a company is actually dealing with an open lab or, or not. You know, probably not. But you know, it's, it still is on there, both on commerce, and it would fall under eight eight nine. So that's sort of a double whammy for that. And then you know, on top of that, there's you know, a couple. Of, there's OFAC sanctions, but then also the Pentagon has its own list of companies mm-hmm. re- uh, associated with the with China's PLA. So this list though doesn't have any compliance requirements, but it's one of those things. Like, I, I look at it almost as like a uh, an early indicator and warning for what 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 the other lists might add on. And so in June mm-hmm. they added twenty Chinese companies that are linked to the PLA. Some overlap with these other lists I've talked about. Some do not. And then they added 11 more in August. And so we'll we'll see what happens with that. And uh, it's something to definitely keep an eye on and to be aware of right now for compliance.
1: If you're, I'm thinking of, you know, a a big company like Apple, who obviously, you know, does a, a vast majority of their manufacturing happens in China. I mean, is there some back and forth here? Is there... Is is Apple uh, working with our government agencies, presumably, and lobbying and saying, hey, you know, we're kind of, you know, you you all love your iPhones, right? So here's a list of companies who maybe back off of.
0: Yeah, and so they're for sure, and writ large, the private sector is pushing back, not only because of the disruptions it causes to their own supply chains, which are already going through a lot of disruptions, um, but also— due to you know, just the, the hard nature of, of actually complying. Uh, and, you know, a good example for this is that uh, for ZTE and Huawei, to, for the small carriers just to basically rip out ZTE or Huawei from their systems, mm-hmm. uh, they, they estimate it would cost $1.8 billion for these small carriers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a wow. cost component, too. So, there, so there's the supply chain disruption component. There's the, uh, you know, just under, having a hard time figuring out how to comply. And then if you do need to comply, it's going to cost a lot of money.
1: Right. It's kind of an unfunded mandate, right?
0: Yes. And that's where, you know, again, some of the pushback is as far as both, you know, clarifying uh, what that list would look like. And I'm finishing up a paper with Lori Gordon on this for National Security Institute on, you know, one of the recommendations is that to have this one-stop shop so people can, or companies, leaders can know what companies are on the, you know, are on any of the list and what they need to do to comply. And so we really do need a one-stop shop for that. But then on top of that, you know, if we're moving in this direction— you know, the government does need to step in and, and provide that support uh, as needed. And you, know, you can argue that some of these really big companies may not need it, but for a lot of the smaller carriers, they absolutely do. And even for the federal government, you know, you've, got the, you know, you've got the big defense contractors, but then you know, there are so many different smaller defense contractors that support them that likely will need that help, or they may go under, given these costs. Mm-hmm. And, so, and then actually, even on top of that, as far as you know, a, a different concern, you know, China has their, introduced their own unreliable list now in response. So we, we so we know of the course it, they have, yep, exactly, right. Which you know, not shocking, right?
1: <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah. know what
0: we're, there's a trade war going on. You know, it's a tit for tat you know, environment. So if the U.S. starts doing this, they create their own uh, unreliable list. They announced that in May, in uh, just last month, they basically expanded on it to explain what you know how they'd go about uh, implementing it. And most people think that by the end of this year, some company may get on it. And like you said, you know, Apple would be. You know, can you imagine if they put Apple on their their list, right? Um, right. I, I don't. I personally. I, I. mean, that would, that would really up the ante quite a bit in the in the relationship. Yeah. So we'll. It's see. hard
1: to imagine, and yet, I. I've you know the the past, I don't know six months, year or so. The unimaginable has been happening every day. So
0: exactly. <laughs> no, that's exactly. And so for right. me, like, nothing's out of the question at this point. Right.
1: right. <laughs> All right. Well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. Save you time and keep you informed. Land of 10,000 lakes. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security, I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast.